0: It's a hot June day in 1978, and Harvey Milk's smile stretches from ear to ear. He waves at the 350,000-plus people who are lining the sidewalks. They're cheering for him. They're calling him the Mayor of Castro Street. Harvey, America's first openly gay politician, isn't in a suit and tie. He isn't flanked by a motorcade of police or security. His campaign manager, Anne, is driving his brown Volvo, and Harvey is sitting on the sunroof, wearing casual blue jeans and a white T-shirt with bold letters that reads, I'll never go back. A black band is wrapped round his left bicep with an upside-down pink triangle, a symbol proudly reclaimed by the gay community after the Nazis used it to identify people they labelled as homosexual. And that's why Harvey is on top of that brown Volvo, leading the Gay Freedom Day Parade to a stage in front of San Francisco City Hall. As Harvey climbs down from the car, he looks out across the scene. Half-naked demonstrators on roller skates fly through crowds with tie-dyed butterfly wings flapping behind them. The sun-kissed faces watching him have been anxiously waiting for him to speak. This is a crowd of people plagued by police harassment and bigotry. People who've been persecuted for their sexuality. Harvey grabs the microphone in one hand and raises his other. My name is Harvey Milk and I'm here to recruit you, he says. I stand here tonight in front of my gay sisters, brothers and friends because I'm proud of you. On the other side of town, in the southeast part of San Francisco, there's a working-class neighborhood that's sometimes hard to find. The houses are small, narrow, and well-kept. And inside one of them, city supervisor Dan White rubs his sunken eyes. He hasn't been sleeping. As a result, the Vietnam veteran has developed some bad coping habits. He's abandoned his regular exercise routine and has been binging on Twinkies and Kool-Aid. He rarely shows up at his City Hall office these days, and he's become skilled at avoiding his constituents. The Gay Freedom Day parade hasn't drawn white from his cocoon, but he knows it's going on, all too aware of the movements of Harvey Milk as he ascends the political ladder. Working in government was meant to provide Dan with a sense of fulfillment and pride. But ever since Harvey Milk stabbed him in the back and voted in favor of allowing a juvenile rehabilitation center to be built in his district, he's been besieged with problems. Problems he doesn't feel equipped to solve. A hard knot of anger and frustration squirms in his belly. It's all Harvey Milk's fault. Over the next five months, that feud will escalate. In fact, it will end up with Dan White pulling the trigger of his gun and shooting his nemesis, Harvey Milk, nine times. From What's the Story Sounds, you're listening to Crosshairs. In each episode, you'll be immersed in some of the most significant and shocking assassination attempts and successes in human history. From meticulously planned hits to killings gone wrong and the moments in time which led to murder. So train your ears and listen as we walk you towards the moment where victim and assassin collide. This is Crosshairs, Episode 3 Harvey Milk. In 1977, San Francisco saw a sea change in how it was run. Across the bay, voters approved a ballot measure that would enable supervisors to be elected by district instead of a citywide vote. For the first time, neighborhood activists had a chance to unseat the well financed and well connected politicians who had run the city for decades. People could choose one of their own. Patriotic Dan White saw an opportunity. He could see the people in his neighborhood, District 8, had been long neglected. He wanted to change things. So, with no experience, no money, but plenty of ambition, he decided to run for city supervisor. He was labeled as a defender of the home, a man who could protect family and religion against homosexuality, pot smokers, and cynics. Could he be the face of San Francisco's new, fresh politics? Harvey Milk had attempted to run for city supervisor a few times without success. He'd moved in the political sphere for nearly a decade, and he had gained a lot of attention and community support. He was openly gay, at a time when no other politician was. And while his sexuality shouldn't have made him stand out, in 1970s America, it did. So in 1977 he decided to return to the campaign trail and try again. This time, he expanded his reach beyond the gay community, and he made promises to reform the tax code to boost industry, create low-income housing, and establish daycare centers for working mothers. Promises which won him even more support. Dan and Harvey appeared together on a number of local talk shows while they campaigned. There were multiple seats on offer for the role of city supervisor, and they were asked if their differing views would create a clash or bring about revolution. In public, they praised each other. Even in private, Harvey told friends he thought he'd be able to work well with Dan. And when it came to election night, all of the campaigning and hard work paid off. Dan won District 8, thanks largely to the votes from colleagues in the fire department and gave up his well-paid job to earn just $9,600 a year. What Dan didn't know was that in 70s San Francisco, politics was considered a blood sport. The job of city supervisor required cunning in a cutthroat environment of hidden motives and deception. He had no idea what he was getting into. November 3rd, 1977, was an historic election. It saw the first Chinese-American, the first feminist, and the first African-American woman elected to the city's Board of Supervisors. And then there was Harvey Milk, who finally succeeded to become America's first openly gay elected public official. Harvey was the second generation of Jewish Lithuanian immigrants. His grandfather had built the largest department store in Woodmere, Long Island, and helped establish the local synagogue. Growing up had been challenging. Harvey used humor to battle ridicule for his protruding ears and big nose, and he knew from a very early age he was gay. When he was 14, he came out to his parents, and they never spoke about it again. As such, Harvey lived a very conservative life and made sure his sexuality never intersected with his family or work. But now, he found himself on a prestigious and seemingly progressive board of 11 city supervisors, one of five newly elected members. And their sole focus was to support their own neighborhoods, the very people who had voted them into office. A few days later, Harvey sat down at his kitchen table with a cassette recorder, a microphone, a stack of blank tapes, and a yellow legal pad. Each page was filled out in blue ink from top to bottom, margin to margin on both sides. Harvey was no stranger to death threats and bigots, but his new responsibility as city supervisor has made him an even bigger target. So, perceiving danger, he taped a detailed political will and memoir of his life for use in the event that anything tragic should happen to him. Into the small microphone, he utters the words, if a bullet should enter my brain, Let that bullet destroy every closet door. (sniffs) Huffy knew that to keep his position, he needed to stay in the public eye. He needed noisy headlines and noisy policies. His first was a tactical maneuver to gain popularity and hopefully gain support for his passion project, a bill to ban discrimination in employment and housing based on sexual orientation. This was revolutionary and would be one of the nation's strongest gay rights measures to date if it passed. Harvey also wanted his staff to remember why they were in City Hall, to remember their mission and why it was so important, to remember the threat that homosexuals faced and the difference that Harvey and his team could make. So each week he chose a piece of homophobic hate mail or a death threat and pinned it to the bulletin board. There was no hiding from the abuse. In Harvey Milk's world, it was about confronting the hatred. Daniel James White was the second of nine siblings, not uncommon for Roman Catholic families at the time. In high school, he was athletic, popular, but he also had a temper He was expelled in his junior year for violence, but still managed to graduate as valedictorian of his class, the highest academic achiever. He wasn't a stranger to adversity and hard work, and he'd proven that throughout his career. Now here he was, ready to get stuck into his new role too. But where would he fall on issues of homosexuality? Dan had been voted in by his district, who had certain expectations but the path towards change and equality was becoming clearer by the day. Dan would need to carefully navigate his way in order to stay in position. Early on, Dan gained some clout amongst the conservatives and he showed support of gay-friendly issues. He voted with Harvey to save a Pride Center and for a resolution honoring a lesbian couple on their 25th anniversary. He had a lot of respect for Harvey. After all, they had a lot in common. They both hated big-money interests, they both represented marginalized communities, and neither were afraid of a fight, which was good, because a fight was on the horizon. Harvey Milk's bid to ban discrimination on the basis of someone's sexuality Was put to a vote among the Board of Supervisors. And there was only one dissenting vote, Dan White. Dan said his objection was based on the intrusion on businesses and schools, places which might have strong personal or moral reasons for not wanting to hire homosexuals. He wanted to represent the interests of the people who had voted him in, the people of District 8. But his voice was a hollow one in a city embracing change, Mayor Moscone publicly committed to signing the measure into law. This was a huge win for Harvey Milk. But he was surprised that Dan hadn't agreed to back him. They were pals, after all. Why had Dan not supported the law? Harvey speculated with his staff that perhaps Dan secretly hated him. Perhaps Dan was in the closet, too afraid to face the truth for fear of how his own community would react. The fact that Dan was expecting his first child did little to sway Harvey's opinion. It was only weeks later in Dan White's district that the decision to oppose the law would come back to haunt Dan. The Catholic Church had proposed to build a facility for juvenile offenders in the heart of District 8. It would house youths who had committed serious crimes like murder, arson, and rape. The youth campus was set to be built on convent property in the Portola neighborhood, and despite being a dutiful Catholic, Dan vehemently opposes it, and publicly went to war with the priest, Father Rasmussen. Dan didn't want a facility like that in his backyard, or in the yards of the people who voted him in. The decision of whether the facility could go ahead would come down to a vote. So Dan turned to Harvey to ask for his support in objecting the plans. Harvey cryptically responded, saying, Dan, you've really earned your $9,600 on this one. It was a strange response for sure, but Dan assumed that Harvey was confirming his allegiance and simply stating it had come at a price. When it was time for the Board of Supervisors to vote on the issue, The public filled the pews, eager to see the results. Most anticipated that Dan would win, and the youth rehabilitation facility would need a new home. The rich mahogany room has ornate floor-to-ceiling carvings, reminders of the moral and ethical duties of the public and their elected officials. Four horned demons lurk above the public seating area, which was shrouded in a hushed silence. The board president... Then went around the 11 city supervisors, asking each one in turn if they backed the building of the facility inside District 8. And as the vote concluded, Dan's eyes widened in disbelief. The last yay counted was Harvey. The rehab facility would be going ahead, and Harvey Milk had pushed the plans through. Dan hid his face from the audience in complete humiliation before he rushed out to escape the insults being hurled at him by his own constituents. What just happened? How was he going to explain to his district that he failed? How was he going to be taken seriously in City Hall again? Why hadn't Harvey given him the support he promised? Dan didn't go back to the office for a week. His wife, Marianne, tried to cheer him up. She sat next to him and put his hands on her heavily pregnant belly to remind him of what they had to look forward to. But this kindness and positivity only made him feel worse. Dan was struggling to make ends meet with the meager government income. And to top it up, he and Mary Ann had started a new snack food business. He couldn't shake the stress. It was becoming so overwhelming that he completely isolated himself from colleagues, friends. He even stopped speaking with Mary Ann even after their baby was born. Dan's world, full of hope and promise just a few short months ago, was now imploding with regrets. California State Senator John Briggs had spent the summer campaigning hard across the state for his Proposition 6 ballot initiative. This ballot is intended to prevent those who support gay rights from working in public schools, the very thing that Harvey was trying to eradicate. Similar legislation had successfully passed in Florida, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Outraged and determined the same wouldn't happen under his watch, Harvey mobilizes with several other activists to counteract the homophobic movement. He drew the support of several political luminaries, including President Jimmy Carter and former California Governor Ronald Reagan. And, curiously, Dan White pledged his support too. Maybe Dan was trying to get back in good graces with Harvey after rejecting his bill before. Or maybe he was trying to save face in politics and back the winning horse. But whatever the reason, Dan did more than voice his support. He wrote Harvey a check for $100 for his campaign a hefty amount that he couldn't really afford to give. Dan extended the olive branch further, inviting Harvey to attend his son's baptism. Just one of three people from City Hall invited, and the only one to show up. On November 7th, 1978, Harvey's message of hope was heard by the crowds, and Proposition 6 was defeated by more than one million votes. Harvey was on cloud nine. But Dan... Harvey's friend, his peer, has never felt so small. He was shrinking into the shadows of Harvey's victories and doubling back on his own political decisions. This wasn't strong leadership, and it wasn't working. Dan couldn't take the pressure any longer. On November 10th, Dan walked into the mayoral office and, without telling anyone, handed in his letter of resignation. But when Dan got home later that day, his phone wouldn't stop ringing. Upset constituents, friends, and old colleagues wanted to know if the rumors were true. Was Dan giving up on them? Was he really quitting? The calls and well-wishes lifted Dan's mood a little. Maybe he was helping, he thought. Maybe they really wanted him to stay. Maybe he should stay. Dan decided then and there to ask for his job back. Everything was gonna be okay. Nobody said a career in politics would be easy. Monday, November 27th, 1978, is a typical damp and foggy winter morning in the city. Dan had been up all night, but not because of the baby in the next room. He'd learned from a radio reporter that Mayor Moscone was set to announce his replacement at 11.30 a.m. that morning. Dan hated driving, but he had to get to City Hall and talk to the mayor before it was too late, before it was irreversible, before someone new had taken his job. So he calls his legislative assistant and asks her if she can pick him up, and before he leaves the house, he straps his loaded 38 Smith & Wesson police service revolver to his belt and adds ten extra-loaded cartridges into his pocket. His assistant drops him off at the McAllister Street entrance to City Hall just after 10am, with the clouds still dark and ominous above them. The entranceway is used frequently by staff, and there's no metal detectors scanning the arrivals. But Dan doesn't want to use the main entrance, so he tries to enter through the basement door, a locked basement door. Undeterred, he stands there for a few minutes, hoping someone will come out. When no one does, he enters the building through the window of an engineer's office, and nobody sees. Beyond the supervisor's chambers are a series of crisp white hallways, connecting the offices of the mayor, supervisors, and their staff. The mayor's office is in room number 200 on the second floor of the east side. His grand office door is framed with the American flag on the left, and the City of San Francisco flag to the right. Dan approaches, but when he sees one of the mayor's staff pull out her keys to unlock a private entrance, he changes tact. Dan introduces himself and asks if he can walk in with her. Of course. She recognizes him and invites him inside. There, Dan asks the mayor's secretary if he can pop in and speak with the boss. Something's come up. It's just before 11am and the mayor's schedule is packed in the lead-up to the press conference. But despite this, Mayor Moscone agrees to see Dan. It's the least he could do, look him in the eye, before announcing his replacement to the world. Dan crosses the Parisian crimson carpet and through the mahogany doors into the office. It's clear from his manner that the mayor is uncomfortable and wants to keep this meeting brief. He speaks bluntly and tells Dan that he isn't going to reappoint him. Though a little more kindly, he says, they can speak about it after the press conference if Dan has more questions. Dan's ears are ringing. A tinny, incessant sound. He can't hear the mayor's words, but he knows he's speaking. The room around him is beginning to pitch and spin. Dan needs to sit down, fast, and staggers to a seat. Mayor Moscone pours Dan a drink, though he doesn't touch it. Dan can see the mayor's lips still moving. But all he can think about is how, in a few moments, the mayor is going to tell the press about how he wasn't a good supervisor and how he doesn't have the support of his constituents. He can't say that. It can't be true. Mechanically, almost. Dan reaches into the holster on his belt, draws his revolver, and fires two shots into the mayor's body. The mayor falls heavily to the floor Dan shoots him two more times at close range above his right ear. He stops moving. The ringing in Dan's ears has lessened. He slowly makes his way to a door at the back of the room, reloading the gun with the extra rounds from his pocket. Walking down the stairs, Dan sees one of Harvey's aides across the hall, It triggers a feeling of deep hatred. Like a film reel in his head, memories flash by, reminding Dan of Harvey's role in his own fall from grace. In that moment, he decides he needs to see Harvey to look into the eyes of the man who ruined his life. Purposefully, Dan changes course and begins to quickly walk to the chambers of the Board of Supervisors on the west side of the building, room 237. It's a large space, containing the board's smaller individual offices and desks for their staff. Dan pops his head into Harvey's office. Clearly, calmly, he says, Harvey, can I see you for a moment? Harvey responds, Well, sure. Harvey follows Dan across the hall to Dan's office, or should he say his old office. Dan shuts the door behind them. Harvey is smiling at Dan, making friendly small talk. But he can see that Dan is upset. Dan tells Harvey he knows about the conversations with the mayor and state attorney. He knows Harvey made sure he wouldn't be rehired. His tone rising, Dan accuses Harvey of being at the helm of a stealthy and devious conspiracy. He talks about his family and the reputation he's been trying to build for himself. But when he looks into Harvey's face, Dan can see he isn't getting through. His body suddenly flushes from head to toes with a white-hot rage and his hand moves swiftly to his pocket. On the other side of the door, with the clock reading 10.55, staff hear Harvey cry out. Oh, no, no! And then a series of gunshots ring out. Dan fires three times into the body of Harvey Milk. And when the supervisor crumples to the floor, Dan shoots him twice more in the back of the head. He puts the gun back in his pocket, steps out of his old office into the corridor and calls out to his former assistant. Give me your keys, he says. Dan leaves City Hall through the front door, and his hatred of driving forgotten speeds away. The sight of Harvey's mangled and bloody face bursts into vision every time he blinks. Dan doesn't know where he's going, but finds himself pulling into the Doggy Diner on Van Ness. He calls his wife at work from a payphone outside, He tells her to take a cab and meet him at St. Mary's Cathedral. Dutifully, she does so. When they sit down, Dan feels like his skull is going to crack open as he tells Mary Ann what he's done. She slumps in the pew, folding forward, and sits that way for a long time. But eventually she stands, takes her husband by the hand, and together they walk to the police station on Ellis Street. Marianne tells Dan she loves him and promises to stick by him. They walk into the station together and Dan hands his gun to the officer on duty. That same night, a sea of over 25,000 mourners with candles march from Castro Street to City Hall to mourn the loss of the two politicians. Dan White's trial opened on May 1st, 1979. The evidence that he killed Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk was overwhelming. An hour after the assassination, he had given a statement to police admitting it. Dan's attorneys didn't want to dispute the actions, but they did challenge the motive. They argued this wasn't a first-degree murder because Dan White was unwell. Forensic psychiatrist Martin Blinder testified that Dan was suffering from continual depression. And after 36 hours of deliberating, the jury seemed to agree, announcing that they found Dan White not guilty of first-degree murder, but instead guilty on two counts of voluntary manslaughter. But this is not the end of our story. Far from it. Once word of the verdict spread, Harvey Milk's friend and aide, Cleve Jones, organized a peaceful protest— He was horrified by the outcome. Were the lives of those men not worth more? By the time the protest had made its way to City Hall, they'd grown to 5,000. As they walked, they chanted the phrase, Avenge Harvey Milk. Police arrived to try and control the demonstration. But it was a tinderbox, a community high on emotion, and they failed miserably. For many in the protest group, the police were in their sights, After all, they'd helped to vote Dan White into office in the first place. And they'd publicly supported him post-shooting, raising over $100,000 for his defense. Plenty of people in the community believed that the police department had conspired to reduce Dan's charges and sentencing, and they were angry. And while the police had been ordered to simply hold the crowd back, some officers began attacking the protesters with nightsticks. Chaos erupts. The crowd becomes a sea of punches and screams which echo around the entrance of the city hall. Cars are set on fire and bricks fly through windows. After three hours, officers move in to quell the rioting for good. Tear gas canisters land among the fighting, sending demonstrators and police running in different directions, coughing violently. Fifty-nine officers and 124 protesters were injured in the riot with about two dozen arrests made. In retaliation, several police officers gathered on their own to raid the Castro neighborhood. They swarmed into an unsuspecting gay bar and began to smash everything in sight. They shouted anti-gay slurs and eventually turned their attention to attacking anyone who happened to be out on Castro Street. The dream Harvey Milk had for equality and acceptance now seemed further away in his death than it ever had during his life. It was against this backdrop that on July 3rd, Dan White was sentenced to seven years and eight months in Soledad Prison. During his sentence, he spoke with police and told them about his intentions on that fateful day. Dan admitted that he had planned to kill four people, including Supervisor Carol Silver and California State Assembly member Willie Brown. In 1985, Dan White was given parole. The conditions of his release meant he was required to live in the Los Angeles area where he reported weekly to a parole officer. After a year, he returns to his home in Excelsior, but it's immediately clear that his neighborhood is worse than prison. Everyone knew the story of Dan White, and public support was hard to find. He couldn't escape the shadow of his actions, even when he tried to wipe the slate clean by traveling to Ireland where he lives a solitary existence, it became quickly clear that all of the distance in the world couldn't erase his past. So a few months later, Dan flew back to America with a plan. Dan sits at the table and writes several notes. He has arranged to borrow his brother's car for the day, and it's parked in the garage of the family home. Dan tapes a hose to the exhaust pipe and sticks the other end through the car window. He clutches photos of his wife, two sons, Charlie Seven and Rory Four, and his infant daughter Laura in his hand. He turns on the ignition and rests his head against the window, while the Irish ballad Fields of Athenry plays on a loop. When his brother Tom finds him at 2pm, there's a note stuck on the exterior of the car that simply reads, sorry. While officers are dispatched to deal with the scene, back at City Hall is an event going on. Alongside the intricate carvings representing liberty, equality, strength, and learning, two people are being immortalized. Bronze busts of Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone are being added to the entranceway, a lasting legacy and memory of their contribution to politics and equality. Because while their terms at City Hall may have been short, what they achieved will never be forgotten. Crosshairs is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Jonathan Guy-Lewis. Sound design by Tom Bruins. Our music is supplied by KPM. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please give it a rating and review. There's a new episode of Crosshairs every week. And if you can't wait for that, why not check out more What's The Story content at www.whatsthestorysounds.com.